Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. A delight to have you all back uh, on, out there in listener land, of course, for broadcasting Buffalo to Barry, Kitchener to Coburg, and thank you, CIUT 89.5 FM, 35 years strong as the alternative radio station in the GTHA. And of course, on podcast in about a week or so, uh, Apple, um, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast. I'm delighted today as part of, you know, Women's History Month and a week after International Women's Day to have the two Sues on. (laughs) I have Suze Morrison, who is the MPP for Toronto Centre. She's also the critic for Urban Indigenous Issues and Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And we know her, of course, as a women's advocate and an advocate for 2SLGBTQ plus folk as well. And uh, no stranger to the show, Susan Gapka, trans elder, uh, QP person, now back at the 519, exciting to hear. Uh, And we're going to talk to both of them about women's issues uh, from an intersectional perspective, but also really we're not even three months away from the next Ontario election. So let's talk a little bit about that too. Suze, I'm gonna start with you. You mentioned a bill that you managed to get passed on Endometriosis Awareness Month, and we're in it right now. Uh, Tell us about that, because that's definitely a woman's issue And, and talk about the intersectionality around that as well. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. I'd love to. Um, So Endometriosis Awareness Month uh, is being marked this March for the very first time in Ontario uh, as a direct result of a bill uh, that uh, was passed at the provincial legislature. I was tabled by my colleague, uh, Marit Stiles, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to co-sponsor that bill um, when we were able to work closely on that. And uh, Marit and I uh, both suffer from endometriosis, and it's a disease that not a lot of people know a lot about. Uh, and it affects about one in 10 menstruating people across Canada. Uh, so it's incredibly common. Uh, but because it's related to period health, uh, you know, there's a lot of stigma about it and not a lot of knowledge about what a healthy period is. And a lot of people go undiagnosed because, you know, there's this level of acceptance about, you know, a certain amount of pain uh, that folks who menstruate experience every month um, that's, you know, kind of considered acceptable or normal. Uh, And we really need to start challenging the narrative about what a normal healthy period is and that it's not normal uh, to be in pain uh, because many of us don't get diagnosed until uh, into our 30s or 40s. Uh, And it's a complex condition uh, where basically the the endometrial tissue that lines the uterus starts growing in all kinds of places in your body it's not supposed to be, uh, which can cause a lot of problems for people um, and often requires uh, surgical interventions. Um, So the earlier that folks can get diagnosed, um, the better they can, you know, manage their pain and their quality of life and also um, access treatment. Uh, So it's it's a really important bill in terms of raising awareness um, as the first step to help helping get people diagnosed. Uh, but we also know, you know, we need to do so much more than awareness. We need obviously better funding for, uh, for, uh, uh, surgeries and, and specialists and, and all of those things. Uh, but I think, you know, from an intersectional lens, a really important part of this bill is, you know, challenging, 
you know, menstrual issues as uh, one that just affects women uh, and really kind of broadening our language around how we talk about uh, menstrual health to also include, uh, you know, trans men. Um, uh, to include non-binary folks, uh, you know, we need to make sure that, uh, you know, we aren't excluding, uh, you know, our trans and non-binary siblings uh, when we're talking about uh, uh, menstrual and reproductive health. Uh, talking to Sue, uh, Sue Morrison uh, from Toronto Centre, MPP, uh, and also, of course, on board is uh, Susan Gapka. Um, before I get to Susan, I want to follow up on something with you, Suze. Um, and that is, it's, it's Women's History Month, and we just had International Women's Day last, last week. I am aware, as somebody who's, you know, been fighting for these, for women's issues for a long, long time, um, that we haven't made a lot of progress in some areas. Equal pay for equal work? Not so much. $10 a day childcare, as you know, we don't have it yet. Uh, uh, that was one of the second wave feminist major calls back in the 70s. Uh, so there's that and control of our own bodies, which you've just spoken of in terms of endometrial health, but also we're seeing this pushback south of the border, but also access to, you know, abortion as healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and of course, from a trans women's perspective, which I'll get to Susan in a minute, you know, just to get the surgery that you need, right? Um, get the healthcare that you need. So, um, what do you, so Suze, what's the problem? And, and also please talk about missing and murdered indigenous women, because there's another issue that there doesn't seem to be a lot of progress on. So take it away. Yeah, I mean, there's so much you, that you've touched on, it's hard to know where to start. I mean, um, you know, it does often feel like we aren't really making the progress that we've hoped for. Uh, you know, it seems sometimes like we're taking one step forward and two steps back. Uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, when we start layering in, you know, the current uh, climate of the world uh, with, you know, the recent COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, things like the, the pay equity gap have only gotten worse and will continue to get worse. I mean, we saw when, you know, folks went home for the pandemic uh, and all of a sudden, you know, people were trying to, families were trying to work from home with kids trying to do online school at the, the kitchen table that, you know, it quickly became statistically speaking, uh, the women in the families uh, that started taking leaves from their jobs to manage the 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 chaos in the home of having kids trying to get through online school it became a full-time job um just to, to to manage the kids at home during the pandemic um and that full-time job often fell onto the shoulders of women who were leaving the workforce and then when we look at you know which fields in the world are predominantly um overwhelmingly jobs and work done by women uh again those sectors tended to be the hardest hit during the pandemic so whether we're looking at you know actual like like frontline healthcare workers uh, that you know were uh, the the in the most dangerous position, especially for the first year year and a half. You know, it's the PSWs that were the personal support workers that were working in long term care homes uh, and in people's homes. It was the nursing staff um, that you know were the the frontline backbone uh, of the health response of the pandemic. And when you look at you know who are PSWs and nurses, well, it's predominantly racialized women, statistically speaking, um, doing that frontline care work. Or when you look at the sectors that were forced to, forced to close the, the 
the earliest and the longest, who were the sectors that were never able to reopen again when we kind of went up and down through our, our reopening phases. Um, you know, a lot of it was, again, sectors predominantly worked by women, personal care services, right? It was, you know, who's been able to get, how long did it take before we got our first haircuts, before we went and got our eyebrows waxed again, before, <laughs> I mean, I, it's been two years, I haven't had a pedicure in two years, Sherry. Um, <laughs> and think about again, that work is predominantly done by, again, statistically speaking, uh, women and, and more specifically racialized women um, and, and who've been out of work and unsupported the longest. Uh, and then when you look at the, the wages that, that uh, folks in those sectors are, are making, they, they were stagnant to begin with. Uh, and then they didn't get the support that they needed from really any level of government in terms of, you know, wage replacement, uh, rent subsidies. Um, you know, it, it's been devastating. So, you know, when you start looking at, you know, kind of throwing the pandemic in on top of, you know, what feels like a, just a total lack of progress over the last, you know, few decades, uh, the picture that we start to see emerging is one that's been absolutely devastating for women. I mean, we've been talking about it in the legislature as the C she session. Sorry, I can't say that <laughs> without tripping on that one. Um, and it's it's absolutely devastating. Yeah. Just before I go to Susan, though, talk about the $10 a day childcare that we're, we are now the only province in Canada that doesn't have, that hasn't negotiated something with federal government around that. And we know how well affordable childcare has worked in Quebec, for example. So, yeah. so where, where's the holdup there? Is there any hope for this happening before the election? What I mean, I don't know. I always have hope, but you know, it's, it's, it's really funny. I remember I was at an event with, um, I won't name them. I was at an event and I ran into a liberal MP at the time and we were talking about the need for affordable childcare and, and they, you know, they were going on about, Oh, you know, patting themselves on the back. Our, our $10 a day program is coming. And I sort of sat there and I was like, okay, I'll believe that when I see it. Um, and I, I think they were sort of offended and taken back that I, I would challenge them, but I was like, I really don't think you get the context here in Ontario. Um, you know, Doug Ford is not just going to sign on the dotted line for affordable childcare. That's not how this is going to roll in the province of Ontario. Um, and anyone that has, you know, stood up and fought the good fight against Doug Ford for the last four years knows that, that nothing, uh, that is good for the people of this province is easily won or easily fought for in the face of Doug Ford. And even when it's, um, you know, basically handed to the province um, prepackaged, it's, it's, it's trying to get the buy-in. Uh, you know, when the premier has to chip in his own tiny little percentage, he doesn't want to do it because he just doesn't want to spend the money uh, to make people's lives better in this province. He doesn't want to support people. He just doesn't want to spend the money. And, you know, what's devastating is this kind of this conservative mindset that can't, that can only see dollars going out and can't see value coming back in. And we know that affordable childcare basically pays for itself because when people can access childcare, guess what they do? Sherry, they go back to work and they pay taxes and the tax revenue you get from people being able to go back to work grows our economy and grows our revenue as a province and as a country. It's shocking. It's shocking. Um, and we saw this in Quebec, right? I think it was within two years that program had basically self-funded itself uh, with the workforce going back and paying taxes. Um, so it's, it's sure, it, it's going to take a tiny little piece of money up front to get that program rolling, but we're going to make it back 
more than like it, it's going to be net positive for the province and so i just don't get it i don't get why the conservatives are dragging their heels uh, I have my suspicions that they're probably waiting until the 11th hour before the election to buy votes, um, as we just saw them do with the license plate, like license plate scheme. Like, let's be honest, uh, you know, they're getting ready to cut fat checks on license plate uh, uh, refunds to everyone mere weeks before the election rolls out. Like, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure that one out. Uh, and I think they're about to do the same thing with the child care program. Um, and, and so they're, 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 you know, playing with uh, holding back essential services for families uh, in order to try and buy, buy votes in the dying days of the election. Thanks, Suze. Uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you're just tuned in to uh, Suze Morrison, MPP, Toronto Centre and critic uh, for uh, the NDP official opposition there. And now we're going to go to Susan Gapka. Uh, Susan, um, trans elder extraordinaire, award winner for QP and now back at the 519. Um, I'm just going to inject a little bit of good news into all of this. It's 10 years since and you were you know prime mover and shaker to finally get toby's law become a law and that was to add trans rights to the ontario human rights code it took a long time to get that done uh but it finally got done in 2012 so first of all hurrah uh but second of all what what do we need now what do trans trans and non-binary women need now what what's still missing well i'm remembering that day that we sat at your office at Queen's Park and um, we had just lost the human rights case on access to surgeries. Uh, hold that thought because I'm coming back to it. Um, and we decided to amend the Ontario Human Rights Code and announce that December to 2006, I think. And um, we announced that, and it took not one, but four tries, the legislation to amend the Human Rights Code. I remember that morning I went to CBC Radio, um, the day it was passed, June 13th, uh, 2012. And um, it was an exciting morning. And then I went to the legislature where it passed on, I think it's consent it's called, there was no standing vote, which caused a lot of people not to be there, but it was a glorious moment. And you'd think that 10 years after, trans people and non-binary people would have access to the human rights and surgeries that, um, that they feel that, that people deserve. And um, Suze Morrison has introduced a bill for a gender-affirming care um, advisory committee. It's something we proposed, um, I think in 2009, 2010 to the Liberal government. Um, and it's come back because it's a good idea. <laughs> it was done in the, I think the Yukon Sues. And um, uh, where, what it does is it centers trans people and healthcare, culturally sensitive trans healthcare professionals um, at the center of decision-making. So of course this government would leave it on the order paper as they move to a provincial election. But I've adopted, um, I brought a resolution on this to uh, NDP convention. It didn't hit the order paper or the floor, unfortunately, but it's still in our hearts. But at QP Ontario, I've 
just submitted a resolution from Pink Triangle, which I chair, for it to for an educational campaign on trans health care for our members, for the public, to work with trans communities, to work with other um, labor unions, especially the Ontario Federation of Labor, where this resolution passed pretty much unanimously a number of months ago. And we're going to try to pass this bill, which provides access to trans and non-binary health care. Um, in less than four attempts. <laughs> I'm just reminded in a conversation, um, at a conversation with some activists uh, yesterday, uh, we had a anti-trans feminism panel on uh, Monday that QP National supported. I spoke in favor of that, not because, oh, to oppose anti-trans feminism, I meant to say. Um, and there were younger trans people talking about the state of the land and how they have to wait and how um, there is a backlash on trans rights since we passed Toby's Act. But I remember Sherry and you said it and I've learned as an elder, trans elder here, now the education occurs. So that's why I've written this into our uh, resolutions for labor to take forward. We've got, still got a lot of education. Um, people want, I think members mostly want, are well-intended, but don't know how pronouns operate, why they're important, how they apply to non-binary people. And I remember also in that church, and I guess I'll wrap it up here. A member in that church, we had passed a federal bill with gender identity and gender. We had, a, well, proposed a federal human rights, trans rights bill, which had gender identity and gender expression. And um, then the conservatives had that cut out during the Harper regime. And someone on the floor said, Sherry, add gender expression, be more inclusive. And the outcome for me has been a phenomena that I did not expect, nor um, for me, a phenomena that was unanticipated. And the emergence of non-binary identities just flourishing, having that safe and protective space, of course, until Doug Ford got elected, because there's a whole history on that, but just how the landscape on trans rights has really moved from a binary trans men, trans women, to a very fluid and um, very um, vibrant rainbow trans community. And mm -hmm. so I found that to be extraordinary and I embrace it. Hard to learn, but I embrace the fluidity. Uh, speaking here on uh, the Radical Reverend Show, if you're tuning in out there in listener land, uh, and thank you for doing so. Always love your comments, questions, etc. cetera. Uh, to Suze Morrison, MPP uh, for Toronto Centre, and uh, to Susan Gapka, trans elders, you just heard award-winning QP member back at the 519. Um, just to be very clear for you who are listening in, um, the Ontario Human Rights Bill, Toby's Law that we passed back in 2012, does have gender identity and gender expression in it. Um, which, uh, so I, so I want to just ask you, Susan, so the whole idea of protecting human rights is so that, you know, 
uh, trans, uh, both gender expression and gender identity folk um, have equal access to services. This is part of what human rights are. So what is shocking to me is that that's still not the case in healthcare. Um, can it not be challenged through um, the, the human rights process? Um, has that come up? Has that been tried? Uh, because, you know, hospitals you, you know, should be providing this care equally to all, including um, trans and non-binary folk. Um, what's happening with that? I mean, has that been tried? Um, not yet. Mostly the trans community members that I've been talking with have tried to approach this government, I said. I, I was after well, it's the not the government, it's the, it's the human rights uh, tribunal, right? Well, um, and it tried to negotiate and I said, well, I tried that first year and mm -hmm. hit nothing but a brick wall. Wow. Um, we have to, and I'm not sure how to say it here. I can't, I don't have the evidence to point to it, but I do, I'll say, I suspect with strong, with profound suspicion that the services at Rainbow Health Ontario um, have been cut uh, dramatically in the last few years, which is why I'm supporting this access to healthcare bill, trans healthcare. Um, and one bright light that occurred um, in the last 10 years was the creation of a publicly funded hospital in Toronto under the previous Liberal government, Women's College Hospital has surgeons and are able to perform um, some surgeries, but that backlog, there has been a backlog in the fast, last few years because they don't have sufficient funding to perform more surgery. So this is public healthcare access. Yes, a good thing a gridlock on how many surgeries they can perform due to uh, um, payments through the government. Um, I haven't heard of a human rights complaint, but I do understand, and Suze might know more about this, is guess what the first, I feel like I'm giving the conservatives a hard time, but under these circumstances, they, thank you. Under these circumstances, I think they deserve my criticism. Um, the first thing a conservative government will do is cut access to human rights protections. And the staff and uh, the resources at um, the Ontario Human Rights Commission have been dramatically cut and access to that human rights protection um, has been done, I think, what's the word in stealth it's not well known but uh, people can't access those services and if we remember in 2000 and i'll just end with this um, in 2009 i believe the liberal government moved it from a public um, service to a more privatized service and so they said it would speed it up but these are the fruits of the labor of speeding it up. Where are we now? There's as much backlog now with access to trans surgeries and women's access to health care than um, there was 20 years ago in Ontario when we were under the Mike Harris government. So the, the, the proof is in the pudding here. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Susan. Uh, back to Suze. Uh, Suze, uh, we didn't get to talk about it, the work that 
uh, is part of your critic portfolio with urban indigenous issues and missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, we didn't have a chance to talk about that. So let's talk about uh, indigenous women in this uh, Women's History Month. Uh, of course, we also know of the finding of the findings in residential schools that have been traumatic and horrific, not unexpected, I have to say, but traumatic and horrific. Uh, talk about Indigenous women's health for a minute and Indigenous women's rights. Yeah, I mean, again, um, you know, when you look at the history of this province, um, areas that are sorely lacking um, adequate investments and adequate funding, uh, you know, when you take, um, uh, when you, you start adding in the additional barriers that uh, Indigenous women are facing uh, to accessing uh, high quality health, uh, there, there's, uh, you know, some immediate barriers that, that come into play, um, you know, uh, COVID-19 included, uh, you know, within the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, as uh, we, we've been seeing wait times for surgeries, for example, get longer and longer and longer. Uh, and that can be more complex, for example, if you're, uh, you know, living in uh, a remote or northern community and you're trying to get access to healthcare that you can't, you know, get because it's not adequately funded uh, in your community or, or uh, even in your nearby region. Um, and, you know, imagine having to, to wait in those uh, surgical delays and having to add, you know, uh, planning for, you know, how do you, how do you come to, uh, you know, come down to Thunder Bay or come into Toronto uh, for a surgery and, 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 and plan all of the life stuff that you have to do around that to make that happen. And then the extra vulnerabilities that that puts you at when, you know, you're likely coming into an urban center um, uh, and experiencing uh, racism, uh, even as you navigate the city, racism in the, in the health system, uh, uh, discrimination, uh, you know, coming down uh, to access healthcare uh, and adding intersectional layers of, you know, poverty. And, uh, you know, it, it, it creates a vulnerable, a vulnerable point uh, for folks because those healthcare services aren't available equity, equitably uh, across this province. Um, so it's, it's, there, there's huge concerns um, with regards to access to healthcare. And, you know, but again, when, you know, you look at the layering impacts of the pandemic, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier around you know, the wage gap as one example. Well, we know that, you know, the wage gap <laughs> for, for white women is, um, you know, about 70 cents on the dollar, but it, it gets to be about 60 cents, 50 cents for, for black women and indigenous women. Um, so again, when you compound that, uh, you know, economic impact, uh, it, it creates vulnerabilities because you're creating systemic poverty uh, that, that is, um, systemically oppressing uh, Indigenous women uh, and Black women who are now even less, uh, you know, economically uh, stable as we we exit the pandemic. Um, and, you know, as much as, you know, the, the pay gap is, uh, you know, awful for all women, uh, we know that it's going to be Black and Indigenous women that are the hardest hit and are going to struggle the most to recover and be the least likely to, to, to rebound, uh, you know, to pre-pandemic economic uh, levels. Uh, so we need to be really intentionally thinking about how we fund and resource um, economic recovery programs uh, targeting, uh, you know, Indigenous and Black women. And I think, you know, when we look at the urban Indigenous infrastructure across Ontario, that that's a really fantastic place to start. Uh, you know, the uh, 
the urban organizations, including the friendship centers, have been doing that work uh, for decades, and they're good at it. Uh, you know, and I think you know investing uh, in those organizations in this moment of time is uh, a, a really great place to start to make sure that you know we're we're putting um, you know economic recovery dollars directly into the organizations that are most able to access and and support the most vulnerable. Uh, of our populations uh, being racialized women uh, to, to recover through the pandemic. Um, so I think that, you know, that would be one piece. And I, I think, you know, coming back to the healthcare conversation that we've touched on from a few different angles, um, you know, we need to address the absolutely inadequate funding of our health system. Uh, and, you know, whether that's, you know, folks that are waiting you know, up to five years at this point um, for transition-related surgeries, uh, or the fact that there's really only one public hospital in all of Ontario to get those procedures done at. Like, let's talk about let's talk about the experience of being a trans woman in, uh, you know, Thunder Bay, and and what that likely looks like to try and get yourself to Toronto to get the gender-affirming surgery that you require, uh, and how economically devastating it is to try and make that journey. Uh, you know or whether we're talking about cancer surgeries that are being canceled. Um, and again, when you look at it from an intersectional lens, okay, well, we know that the rates of, uh, of cancer are actually higher uh, among indigenous populations. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, uh, which populations stand to fare the worst uh, uh, from these surgeries being canceled? Um, it's the populations that have that, the higher instances. Uh, so you start kind of layering all of this together. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty scary picture, but it, it's not one that's rocket science to fix. It, it takes investment in our system so that it's there and it's going to work for people. Uh, and right now we have a conservative government that doesn't think it's its job to help people and they just don't want to spend the money. Let's talk, Suze, uh, too, and we should mention this because uh, Bill 124, uh, of course, that we've been calling on repealing um, that, you know, basically <laughs> uh, taps, uh, you know, among others, but nurses' uh, salaries below the rate, way below the rate of inflation right now in Toronto um, and across Ontario, um, and that everyone is demanding to be repealed. But, but also, I mean, I have to say that this move to privatization in the healthcare system, which COVID has just uh, amplified, really. I mean, I, I, it just drives me a little nuts to walk into the Eaton Center, for example. The first thing you see on the left is a private clinic doing testing and charging for it. So whereas somebody who tests positive on a rapid test at home um, you know, wants to get a PCR test to, you know, make sure, uh, can't, you know, can't access that. But if you pay 200 to $250 or $180, wherever you go, then you can access it. This is, this is one healthcare system for people with money and, and another for those who haven't. Um, so, so, so maybe talk a little bit broadly about, because we know that women are not only the providers, you know, a lot of the providers of this healthcare, PSWs, you know, RNs, et cetera, but they're also the recipients of it, right? Um, so, so let's talk about the privatization move uh, that's far from secret, Suze. It, it should be incredibly disturbing to folks that uh, we have privatized uh, COVID testing in this province. I think that, um, you know, I think the conservatives are largely getting away with it because, you know, I think we see this as temporary. Um, and, 
But, you know, I think what's really interesting is, you know, I, I have some friends that live down in the States. And, you know, we talk about the different responses uh, to COVID-19, uh, you know, in Canada and the States. And, and as Canadians, I think, you know, the, the one, if you ask any Canadian, what differentiates us from the United States, we'll say, oh, we have free healthcare. And we get, we get sort of lofty about it. And, um, you know, like, like our identity as Canadians is attached to our publicly funded health system. Uh, and in reality, when you look at the United States response to um, COVID testing and COVID vaccines, they're actually doing a better job of it than we are, quite frankly. Uh, even today, you can go into the States um, and uh, you can get a free PCR test. You can get free rapid tests. My friends joke they can basically get rapid tests at McDonald's uh, in the States. Like it's, they're, they're, the testing is everywhere. Uh, and, and they've made it really easy for people. And but here in Canada, we now all of a sudden have this two-tiered approach to, to testing that, that's privatized. Um, you know, and, and I think we, we need to be very, very, very careful about um, how we are letting privatization creep into our health system um, and create this two-tier system and ask ourselves, you know, if, if this is our value as Canadians, that we have publicly funded, accessible, equitable health care, then this cannot be allowed to stand. Uh, you know, you shouldn't ever have access to a different or better level of care or more treatment options because you can afford to pay. Healthcare should never be pay to play. Um, and it is, it is deeply disturbing that we are seeing this. Worse, we know that privatized care is not higher quality. And, and the best proof of that is our long-term care system that was privatized under former conservative premier, Mike Harris, but let's not also forget that that privatization continued and worsened for 15 years under the provincial liberal government. They are just as guilty as Mike Harrison can never be let off the hook for that. And what happened in our privatized long-term care homes? More than 4,000 of our elders died, 4,000. And some will say, oh, you know, it was a pandemic and, and they were vulnerable. Well, how many of those elders died of dehydration and neglect, not of the virus? Dehydration and neglect to the point that we had to bring in the army. We had to bring in the army to come in and investigate these homes while people died. And why was the care, the care so terrible? Well, in service to the bottom line. These homes are privatized and their only incentive is maximizing profits for shareholders. Maximizing profits for shareholders. And I would ask anyone in this province, if after a life well lived of hard work to their community, raising families, if in the final months of your life, you want to, to know that you're gonna be cared for and, and have a dignified, a dignified end of life. Or if you wanna risk the quality of your care by an organization that cares more about paying their shareholders profits, will you languish in a bed with sub substandard care so that those shareholders can get their dividends? If that's how you want your life well lived to end. And I think the answer for most people in this province would be no, it would be no.
And so we need to ask ourselves, is it acceptable that, you know, former premier Mike Harris is making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year as the board chair of Chartwell of the system he privatized himself, or that these long-term care homes while taking public sub wage subsidy dollars from taxpayers paid out shareholder dividends and made record profits while 4,000 people died in their homes. Like at what point do we say enough is enough, long-term care is healthcare and belongs in the public realm. And we need to start undoing the wreckage of privatization that Mike Harris spearheaded in the mid nineties. Speaking here to, I'm just going to interrupt you just yeah. to, just to do a little <laughs> bit of check. You're tuning in. You're listening to Suze Morrison. She's uh, MPP for Toronto <laughs> Centre, and uh, we're talking, of course, in this uh, Women's History Month, uh, a week after International Women's Day, to her and Susan Gapka, trans elder uh, at the 519 QP Award recipient, and uh, you know one of the the activists that brought about. Uh, the, some of the bills that I was honored to pass are regarding trans rights in this province. Um, uh, so Sue's just like getting back to you on that. We have an ethics commissioner in Ontario. We have people in the civil service that are charged with looking into things like investments that pr you, you profit from through your political career. Um, you know, it, it's, it mind boggles most people that, that the, you know, the actions of conservatives who can sit both in government supporting private care and make money from private care isn't investigated more. Um, just say something a bit, bit about that because, because that seems to be a glaring problem um, yeah. right off the bat. I mean, there's not much that can be, you know, done in some respects. I mean, you know, once you sort of exit political life, um, you know, the, the integrity rules, you know, have sort of a, an expiration date on them. Um, and I know for former cabinet ministers and, and premiers, there's sort of a, a certain amount of time that they're not allowed to, um, you know, engage in certain business practices and sectors after, you know, exiting office. Uh, but, you know, the, those those periods of time have limits on them. And so there's nothing that stops, you know, a, a premier from privatizing uh, our healthcare, you know, waiting out sort of the, the limitation periods um, and, you know, jumping in feet first to, to make buckets of money on, on a system they helped create, um, you know, a few years down the road. Um, there's nothing that stops that from happening. Um, so, you know, it's, it would be one thing, um, you know, if we could go after these guys while they're still in office, but it's, um, uh, and certainly, you know, in some respects we have, <laughs> I know that, you know, uh, as an official opposition, we've certainly uh, caught the conservatives in a few things, um, uh, you know, with their hands in the cookie jar with the integrity commissioner a couple of times, but um, uh, it is frustrating. And I, I think people expect more from their elected leaders. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, this is, this is, this is why, uh, you know, I think we, we, we need to start looking differently, um, uh, you know, at, at who we elect, you know, I think this province, quite frankly, is ready for, for an NDP government, you know, we've gone back and forth from bad to worse between, you know, consecutive conservative, conservative and liberal governments uh, for, you know, two decades now. Um, and I think people are ready for the kind of change 
that's going to put people first uh, and make investments in things like healthcare um, and ensure that our health system is not further privatized uh, and in fact bring long-term care homes back into public ownership um, and public management. You know, only new Democrats are willing to have that conversation about ending the privatization of healthcare. And if we decide as a province that that's the direction we want to go in, then we need to start voting like it um, and electing an NDP government here on June 2nd, uh, because our, our healthcare system needs us to, <laughs> quite frankly. Susan, I'm going to come back to you, uh, Susan Gapka, and uh, let's talk about, you're a union gal, you're a CUPE gal. Uh, let's talk about, uh, you know, and we're talking about women primarily, but I mean, you know, CUPE represents a lot of women and a lot of non-binary and trans folk too. Um, so, so incredible suffering in the last four years in this province and across Canada, deaths, uh, you know, from education workers to uh, Healthcare workers, people are walking into unsafe workplaces, risking their health for us uh, every day. Uh, and now we're we're seeing, you know, some staff in in you know post-secondary uh, areas going out on strike. Um, you know, again, um, but but there has been this general question that you know I hear from my frontline workers. You know, when I say so, talk to your union rep, like. Should there have been more strikes? Should there have been more? And I know many unions were not in a strike position, but but I mean, there's a general sense that things have never been worse for the labor force. Um, talk about that a little bit. Wow, I wasn't expecting to go this direction. <laughs> just to add on the long-term care funding mm -hmm. capital projects, that public money has gone to private corporations to build new infrastructure. And some of the facilities were the most egregious and under review during the COVID and the death. So I just wanted to add that this is a multi-layered, but thank goodness Sue's went first because I probably wouldn't be invited back if I told you what was on my mind <laughs> about the current state of affairs on the privatization of public health care. But in QP, you know I'm a human rights activist. And for me, this is both my strength, but also my pedestal. Um, we are very concerned about a just recovery. Our frontline workers are in some of the most difficult places. And when we, just for example, I, we are on a rant about, I, I be careful here, but I feel like it must be noted that as we remove public health regulations, who is at risk? low income, equity seekers, people with disabilities, people working as frontline servers, um, retail, um, who are at risk, of, who, and now I'm getting emotional, but really these protections of masks and vaccinations, for example, of testing have been downloaded upon the individual. That puts many of our workers, it goes instead of a public health response, it's now an individual survival of the fittest um, 
now I'm getting emotional. Just and, and so that upsets me is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And our workers are at risk. We want to see a just recovery. One, and we have an opportunity. I, um, I've learned a lot in the last 10 years. I've had access to political structures based on my white skin, my um, Canadian heritage. I'm of, 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 of European um, descent. Uh, Ukrainian, so I have a fighting spirit, as the world now all knows. <laughs> I'm not going down yet, but um, I'm going to be helping people like Suze Morrison get reelected, an Indigenous woman. People like your successor, um, Sherry Utella Carpucci, who I've worked with closely in your office, become reelected. I want to see more women in positions of leadership. And in our union, we've just elected um, Yolanda McLean from uh, 4400, the education sector, as our first racialized secretary treasurer, which is uh, a, a senior officer. Um, and I work alongside with our women, with our I'm one of them, <laughs> um, with our racialized and indigenous women. Now as a see, as an elder, I get to pound the streets and knock on doors to lift other people up for positions of leadership. Because it really is time for me to take a step back. But also what I've learned is who do I support and move forward? And so I think that's really important. We have a chance to change the structure um, on June the 2nd in Ontario, and then again later in the year in municipal office, I am laser focused on making the change that supports equity seekers by lifting ourselves into positions of leadership. I get to appreciate that, um, but also lend what energy I do still have when I'm not running a half marathon every week of <laughs> pandemic goals. Um, but, you know, I've been very blessed to be able to work from home during the pandemic, but many of our workers have struggled. And it's women, of course, and racialized and Indigenous women that have been put mostly in harm's way through this privatization of the healthcare response to. Um, uh, to the pandemic goals, we have an opportunity to shape a better Ontario. And I really want, I, I just ask your viewers to join us in, 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 in achieving that goal, because I really worry about another four years of uh, the downloading and privatization of our systems upon our most vulnerable. Um, thanks, uh, Susan Gapka, of course, um, trans senior, trans elder uh, worker at 519 and QP member. Um, uh, before I, I go back to Suze, just to wrap up, um, uh, Susan, you must be shocked because part of, of how we gained what we did uh, for the 11 years that I spent at Queen's Park was actually almost 12, um, was by working across party lines, by being nonpartisan. And some of the women that now sit in positions of power on the government side are also women. This is, we have to acknowledge this in Women's History Month, are also women who signed on to some of the bills, especially you know, the queer positive bills that got 
got uh, forwarded and got made into law. Um, and I, I just, I'm speaking for myself now, it's just very distressing to see, uh, see, you know, women who could have made, and I'm not going to name names, but could have made their political careers by standing up to what is Ford's agenda, and we'll just name names there, uh, you know, capitulate, really capitulate to a privatization um, agenda. So I'll, I'll leave that at that. Um, the, the other issue, and, may, and maybe before I go back to Sue's, just to wrap up, that's really front and center, especially in the GTHA, is housing, homelessness, uh, poverty. I, and again, women, major and racialized women, major recipients of poverty, um, the, the, the major ones that we see suffering and their children. Um, anybody remember campaign 2000, 22 years ago, when we were supposed to get rid of child poverty in this country? Uh, anyway, no, nowhere close. In fact, it's getting worse. Um, housing, and I spoke um, just last week on the, on the show, we did a, a, a show on homelessness and Jess was on, Jess Bell, um, and also Faith in the City talking about their recent demonstration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, Susan, you experienced life on the streets just like I did. Um, and, uh, and what can you, like, what, what are you seeing now, um, especially in the trans and non-binary communities? Because we know that racialized trans and non-binary folk are, the, are really the most at risk um, in, in, in the city for homelessness and poverty. Thoughts? Well, um, a couple of thoughts, a positive and a negative, I guess. Um, lost a few coworkers um, at the 519, trans women of color and community members. And I want to really, really proud, I don't have the authority to speak on behalf of 519, but their policies at this time, but the policy, uh, they've been very public about their service to community. And the kitchen turned into, um, a, I don't know if I should say it, soup kitchen. I think that might be a derogatory term, but our kitchen, a restaurant closed down and became a place to feed people sleeping in Barbara Hall Park, um, formerly known as Cawthra Park, who I've learned was one of the colonizers along in our neighborhood and so many others that I've learned about. Um, so I think that's a really good thing. And I think I say that we have the gayest place in town uh, or in the country, but that I'm thinking uh, uh, we're unionized. So actually around bargaining, I tried to get some trans health care included. We were stonewalled by the city. Um, but I'm working with some folks, I don't want to say names, but um, I'm expecting to be on the next round of bargaining where we can um, get some healthcare protections, things around um, the trauma that we go through. And I think the workers in one way, I didn't realize I would have so much in here to say, but we're frontline workers are not only to provide services. So we hire, we're compassionate and caring people. We're also enforcing the guidelines and the rules. So we're placed in this dual emotional struggle of like keeping the place safe. Um, so that's, um, that's in progress and I'm not gonna retire till that's done. Um, 
in other news, uh, we've recently, um, QP has recently, um, guess who organized, became Maggie's organized and joined QP. Um, EGAL joined QP and they not only joined QP, they felt most aligned with my local. And we've been in negotiation with EGAL and um, they have reached a tentative agreement but it hasn't been ratified yet. And there is some things that you hopefully will see uh, when that is made public that benefits trans and non-binary people. So um, I'm feeling hopeful about that. And, um, but I also don't wanna be the single source <laughs> trans person doing this work. I really wanna encourage the younger generation uh, and carve pathways so that they can, um, you know, uh, so that there'll be a legacy piece. There will be, uh, and I think it's happening. We're electing some trans people in different regions across the country. But just again, remembering that um, women need to have access. And I want to see more women in positions of leadership in our union, racialized and indigenous women. In, and um from all equity groups in our labor unions and in our political structures. Um, Suze, uh, by the way, if you're tuning in now, you're too late. <laughs> You've missed uh, the two Suze, uh, Suze Morrison, uh, MPP for Toronto Centre and uh, critic for urban Indigenous issues, also uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and, and uh, girls, uh, looking at that and we're going to round out the, the program with talking to her, but that and Susan Gapka, you know, QP members, you just heard at the 519 now, award winner and activist for forever. Uh, Suze, just to, we've just got a couple of minutes, but I just want to touch on poverty and homelessness because urban Indigenous, I mean, this is, this is a real issue for urban Indigenous women, right? Um, uh, what should we be doing? What aren't we doing? Investing in communities. Um, it, it comes down to it. It's not rocket science. Um, you know, we need uh, funding for, uh, for, for programs, um, for uh, economic improvement, for, uh, for affordable housing. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's not rocket science. It comes down to actually investing adequate levels of funding uh, for program and service delivery that is um, uh, also uh, being targeted directly into Indigenous organizations. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we need to, um, you know, stop investing, not stop investing, but, you know, like shift investing um, into Indigenous dollars into non-Indigenous organizations and make sure that that money is actually being directed into Indigenous-led organizations who have the best access to those communities. Thank you both very much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, and uh, maybe that 5.5 billion that, uh, that went unaccounted for from the, uh, the conservative government might go towards ameliorating, ameliorating uh, some of the problems we've talked about. Um, until next time on the Radical Reverend Show, please keep your comments, questions, suggestions coming. We love you out there in listener land. Till the next time, bye now. <laughs>